Well, a very warm welcome to you. It's a beautiful day here in Tucson, Arizona. The weather's cooling off and we're glad because it gets very hot here. This is a reason for hope and we are live with you for the next hour to receive your questions on God's Word, the Bible. That's right. If you have questions on the Bible, perhaps a verse or passage of Scripture you'd like to delve further into, maybe world events from a biblical perspective, maybe something going on in your world, in your life that you're walking through, you'd like to get some counsel from the Word and the biblical perspective. Really, any honest question seeking an answer from the Word, we're here to navigate that with you with the Lord's help today. And we're very glad that you are joining us with me today in the studio, Pastor Sean Richards. How are you doing today, sir? Pondering what problem a bucket of spiders can't solve. <laughs> Man, that's a, that's a good one. I had an answer from my brother about your question yesterday about the flavor of raspberries. I am intrigued. He said pineapple because he often eats raspberries with pineapple. So, so sour? Yeah. Yeah, right. or tart, as he said. So we'll never let it be said that we don't deal with the real issues. That's here. right. That's <laughs> right. And it's only going to get better from there. Also with us today, Adrian Van Vactor, internationally. <laughs> yes, yeah, so you, you didn't miss much. Internationally renowned and award-winning illusionist adrian van vactor how are you doing good adventures in uh child rearing we had yeah we had a bite today which was exciting you shouldn't and, do that uh, to children well you know i figured if he bites me i should bite him back but well, apparently you're not supposed to do that <laughs> yeah well my mother did that to me and that and i never bit again so it's, that's probably not a bad gotcha. anyway we, we we don't endorse <clears throat> that kind of thing on here. Yeah, no, i didn't bite my son uh, but <laughs> no. he did bite a fellow student at preschool today so oh, we're man. wrestling with that and and we're in the exciting throes of potty training and all the exciting things that uh, come with that so wow well we're glad that you've <laughs> found the time to be here it's very valued um for you to be and also i wanted to mention adrian you were a very significant part of having the studio set up and mm. getting operational we had a lot of fun doing that didn't we it was a blast researching equipment creating this lovely background and uh i won't expose the secrets behind no, what it is that's but, right. uh, like a true illusionist we want to keep its genuine realistic look to it right but, uh, and it's been great we had a lot of comments of people just like loving the new setup that it's very engaging and um and it's certainly, I've, I've had a lot of fun being part of it as well. So yeah. so thank you. Thank you oh, for your yeah. investment. Um, it's very good to see you guys and glad that you are here. So let me let you know how you can be part of our broadcast today. Obviously, if you're hearing me and, and seeing me, you have uh, already found a way. But Reason for Hope is a ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Uh, so you can find us on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. Follow the Watch Live tab and you can watch us there also on Facebook, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. You can join us on Facebook there as well. We have a mobile app and uh, for your mobile device and also on Roku and Apple TV. So look for Calvary Christian Fellowship there as well. On YouTube, uh, we are at uh, A Reason for Hope. That's the name of the channel on YouTube, A Reason for Hope. And you can send in your questions through the various, you know, the chat functions through those various platforms. And I personally, We'll be uh, just viewing those as they come in, and we will get to them as the, the Lord allows. Also, you can follow uh, Pastor Scott, the senior pastor here um, at Calvary Christian Fellowship. My phone is ringing in my pocket. That's very distracting. Let me just turn that off. <laughs> Vibrating. You can follow Pastor Scott on Twitter at Scott R for H. That's Scott 
letter R, number four, letter H. He posts, uh, you know, updates uh, on world events and the like, and also highlights from our show as well. So you can follow him on Twitter there. Uh, and our email address, that's what I'm always forgetting. Email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope, all spelled out, at gmail.com. If you're listening to us on the radio, you are listening to our last show pre-recorded, but do email us your questions there, and we will get to them on our next show as the time allows. So thank you so much for being part of the broadcast. Send your questions in, and we are very excited about where this hour is going to go. Adrian, as you're you know, a rarity with us, would you like to pray? Mm-hmm. That'd yeah. be great. Uh, Father, <clears throat> it is a privilege to know you, and thank you for your word. Thank you that uh, we have free access to the kinds of tools that no human being has ever had in history to delve deep into your revelation to humankind, your love letter to humanity. So we ask that you would <clears throat> give us clarity of speech and thought and wisdom as we attempt to, as best as we can, answer the questions of those who are searching for answers through your word. And we ask this in the only name that we can pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Adrian. Well, speaking of Reach Radio, we had a question that was um, sent to us through Reach Radio, sent along by Terry, uh, talking about Isaiah forty twenty two is the, the verse. Um, the question is, does Isaiah forty twenty two talk about the circle of the earth, meaning the flat earth? Does the Bible teach that the earth is flat. Yeah, we dealt with this issue a few days ago, and what was interesting about it is we didn't get into specifics as far as passages were concerned because the issue was more the mindset and methodology of how they handle the text. And while we did give all due respect to human beings who invest a lot of passion into this cause, uh, the question itself was, does this affect your salvation as far as mm. uh, believing in a flat earth or not? And we said no, but it does affect your witness. And the reason is because the flat earth position isn't a conclusion based on data. It's a reaction to too much false data being given from the same scientific sources that say that the Earth is spherical. Now, obviously, we don't take modern contemporary scientists as an authority over the Bible, but we also want to be consistent in our handling of the text. So since this question gives a specific passage, let's go through it and see if it is, in fact, um, not only meant to be taken woodenly, that it's literal or bust, but also note as well to hopefully give you more to walk away with than just a debunked passage. The passage in Isaiah 40:22, and this was one of the passages I alluded to, a third of a verse that needs to be used in order to verify this. The verse on its own, since that's all that the individual cited, was, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth, it goes on to say, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Now, that would be the full stop if we were only supposed to deal with Isaiah 40:22. but unfortunately, this is a part of a much broader conversation. Three problems that we would, as Bible teachers and people who study this stuff regularly, would level if you're going to conclude that passage as a literal description of the topography of the earth. 
The first problem is within the verse itself, you have to be very inconsistent with literalism and symbolism in the language that it's presented in. For example, if I say, well, it says the circle of the earth, that can and only will ever mean that the earth is a circle. Circles are two-dimensional, not three-dimensional. Okay, then it goes on to say the inhabitants of the earth are like grasshoppers. Now, I'm familiar with the uh, insect known as the grasshopper. I watched Bugs Life in my early childhood and uh, quite enjoyed it. But when it comes to the descriptions of the inhabitants of the earth, are we all exclusively described as grasshoppers? Well, last time I checked, I couldn't jump that quite that high. Oh, we don't have the hops, impressed. as they say? Yeah. Okay, well, uh, maybe that's uh, just, you know... Your, uh, could it mean that if God, if you're trying to picture yourself as an ancient and God is revealing that, hey, from up here, you guys look like grasshoppers in your little plate of a planet? Or you go to the book of Numbers, and interestingly enough, you see the people of Israel describe giants <clears throat> in the land, and we were as grasshoppers in mm -hmm. their sight. It doesn't mean that they transmorphified into insects. It means they were small. That means just their big toe would be the size of this room. That is quite a substantial yeah. human being. But also note, there's another way of taking that. It is expressive. Grasshoppers are small. Mm -hmm. Humans are large. So in a mm -hmm. human perspective, looking at the inhabitants of the earth, if you consider the earth itself as nothing to you, we would also be small. It's poetic language. But again, what gives you the authority to be inconsistent with the text and say, circle of the earth, yeah. literal. Next sentence. Yeah. Right. Obviously symbolic. It goes on. Who stretches out the cur the heavens like a curtain? So the fabric of the universe is literal mm. fabric. That's interesting. So God is literally the first class stewardess of an airline going. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, it goes on to say it spreads them out. That is the heavens like a tent to dwell in. So now we know that the uh, universe is also tent-like in mm -hmm. its shape. If we're mm -hmm. going to take this passage yeah. as woodenly as they insist, the first fourth of it. And I think that, of course, we've belabored the point, but let me just jump back about 10 verses and note what's being described here, what's being set up. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure? Obviously, these are hypothetical questions, but note that Isaiah is describing in comparison to idols, that's what this chapter started with, and also notes in verse 10, the Lord God is what's in mind here. Mm. A span is the smallest measurement, according to ancient measuring, that would be the distance between your pinky, pinky finger and, thumb, and your yeah. thumb. Now, does God have a pinky finger and a thumb? Not literally. In John 4, we're told that God is spirit, and those mm -hmm. who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So why do you take that passage sure as Mormon, opposed to others? That's yeah. a different story. <laughs> well, we can uh, <laughs> deal with that as well. The hand of God, does God have a hand, at least at the time of Isaiah was concerned? No, obviously not. Mm -hmm. And obviously the depths and volume of his hand weren't enough to encompass <clears throat> the waters of the scripture earth. scripture talk about God's right hand and the hand of God and so on and so forth? I mean, I'd love to go to the specific <laughs> passages, but I would guarantee you those are all messianic references. The point being made, though, is this. If we have a chapter that's using expressive language to mm -hmm. magnify the glory of God, and only the first third to maybe even a quarter of a verse, it says, it says circle of the earth. That means that the earth is a circle. Okay, it says we're like grasshoppers. That means we are grasshoppers. Mm -hmm. No, no, that's symbolic. When did yeah. that start? 
<laughs> yeah, and it's a it's a hermeneutical conundrum. I have had a friend, a very close friend, who uh, deeply and passionately believed in the flat Earth because he would often say the Bible's God's word, and I take God's word literally, not mm. figuratively, like you know some of the lost, nominal, fallen, backslidden believers, as, mm. as he as he would identify them as. And he would point to passages like this, and he would say, this passage literally means a flat disk, not a dome, even though some places it uses the word to describe something that's dome-like, all the while ignoring the clear, simple, observational language. One of the things that Galileo said is that when you're going, before you interpret, always consider the point of reference in plain, simple language. Mm. The point of reference is the listener, the person who is being spoken to. And if you're standing in a field and you look all the way around you, you detect a roundness. There is no (laughs) jagged corners in the horizon. It is round. And if you look up through the horizon, you see that as far as you can see all around you and all above you, you you're under the dome of the heavens. Mm. So using dome-like language and disc-like language would be totally normal if you're using observational language. And when God uses statement of extremes for emphasis sake, like saying you're like grasshoppers, really illustrating the greatness of God and the littleness of humanity and so on and so forth, what people try to do is try to inject modern scientific understandings into texts as if somehow God was revealing secrets of science rather Mm. than the plain meaning of the context of the passage of what God's trying to communicate. Mm. And we see that this is called concordism, where you're trying to get modern science, not just what we know as modern science, but also theoretical theories, and have them concord with Scripture, as if God was somehow uh, revealing things that only we would know in the future, once we have arrived at this modern scientific understanding, Which something that the never, ancients wouldn't have known. But yeah, scripture never advertised itself as a source <laughs> of scientific truth. It's meant to communicate your relationship with God. It can do so through history, mm. poetry, or prophecy. And in this case, note the call isn't to get out yeah. of a jam, or it's for people who are calling us out on pseudoscience and say, "See, your Bible teaches a flat yeah. Earth." No, we're saying be consistent with the rest of the text. Right. Obviously, it's symbolic. Otherwise, you have to insist that we're grasshoppers, the Mm -hmm. heavens are a curtain, and the universe is a tent in the verse that you're citing. You always have to take into consideration the language in which the author is intending it to be understood. Mm -hmm. So if you say, well, I take the Bible literally, and I say, well, I do too. I take God literally for everything he says. He literally is using symbolic language, and here he's literally comparing himself and me as a grasshopper. Like Uh, literature. Does it mean I'm a grasshopper? No, he's, he's using the same kind of language that we use in our modern day where mm-hmm. we use euphemisms and statements of extreme for emphasis sake and and to illustrate and to uh, get the word picture across but in the context of not me but the listener who is not me but them who lived in their time with their understanding and 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 so you have to take each text in the meaning or in the intent of its author and the understanding of its hearers and to say that because we understand the Earth to be an object that's in space with planets and solar systems and galaxies and so on, that it's somehow a flat disk simply because the word disk or circle or something that's 
plate or dome-like is used in the language uh, is really abusing the text, sadly. Eisegesis. Yeah, very good. Thank you for that question, which again came in through Reach Radio. We appreciate our radio listeners. Um, as I mentioned, we're, you're listening to a pre-recorded uh, show, but you can send your, your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com, questionsforhope at gmail.com, and we will get to those on our next show. We have a, a question from MACD, which was from yesterday as well. Um, and this is, this is a great question because I know, Sean, you've been involved with our Friday night outreach at the uh, SWAP meet, um, having lots of interesting conversations, I'm sure, about the Lord. Um, and Adrian, you are on a, a, an illusionist, and you have gone around the world using that gift uh, as a way of um, sharing the gospel and also uh, sort of disproving some of the, you know, uh, so-called real, uh, uh, you know, magic <laughs> um, in those countries, right? Do you want to tell us just uh, just briefly about uh, about that before I come into the sure. question? The question's about sharing God and, and that kind of thing, but... Well, originally it started as, I started off as an illusionist, uh, non-religious kid growing up in a non-religious, my dad was an atheist or agnostic, depending on his mood at the time of the week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I got fascinated in the art of magic because I was a lonely, friendless kid and desired to connect with people. And I found a craft that became a hobby that I really enjoyed. And I, I discovered that it was a great way to make friends and draw interest in who I was. So it was really a vanity thing when mm. I was a kid, you know, junior high age. <clears throat> and then when I became a believer in uh, my late teenage years, I was immediately overwhelmed with the desire to share my faith. Mm. And so I just did it. I would go down. To, we have this event, or at least used to. I don't know if they do it anymore, but it's called Downtown Saturday Night. Every other week, the entire downtown Tucson area would get cordoned off, and there would be bands and vendors and street preachers Mm. and i would go down there with a deck of cards and just do tricks for people and and draw a small group of five six people and then i would do it close enough to the street preachers with the big megaphones and i would just ask questions like hey what do you think of all this stuff and these guys are like shouting at people and and i would say Mm. things like you know not their method but the the core of the message the idea that god is real and uh that we are accountable to god and strike up conversations and share my faith that way i would go to a restaurant and literally sit there for hours reading my Bible and playing with my cards, trying to get people to go, hey, what, do that again, and and just try to strike up conversations. Mm. In that context, as people discovered, you're an illusionist, the question would automatically come up, well, okay, what you're doing is just a trick, right? Yes. I, I would always make that clear that I'm not claiming to have any special powers or special abilities. Well, <clears throat> what about... And then I would get a series of either personal experiences or stories that they heard or shows that they had seen or just what our culture has gleaned from paranormal beliefs. And so it became sort of a secondary necessity born out of being an illusionist and a believer and desiring to share my faith, Mm. the need to be able to respond to questions about the paranormal. So I ended up becoming... Uh, not by choice, but a sort of default paranormal researcher. So every time I would go overseas on the mission field, I would seek out claimants of paranormal claims, especially if they were popular and had a lot of followers. Mm. I would find out who they were, how they did what they would do, and then I would do a little expose in my show. So for example, if I was in, in India, 
during my show, when I'm getting ready to share the gospel, before I would do that, before I would sort of earn the right to talk about this subject, I would do an effect that would be very closely related to something that Sai Atha Sai Baba would do. Mm. He was a guru who claimed to be all the gods of all the religions, including the reincarnate Jesus Christ, and he would prove that he was by materializing objects from thin air. So I would produce the sacred ash that he would make appear, the sacred Hindu ash, which was uh, burnt up cow patties. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> Very and, sacred. Uh, yes, very sacred. And uh, I wouldn't use the sacred ash in my stage performance. I would use Johnson & Johnson baby powder. Yeah. Uh, but the, the sacred ash was called Vibhuti or Vasma. But uh, I would say this isn't the booty. This is Johnson Johnson baby powder, which goes on the booty. <laughs> and they didn't get the joke, and I never got a laugh. But Westerners love it. you laughed every time. <laughs> I laughed every time. But I would produce the sacred ash as a, magi- as a magician would. And my audience would be whispering Sai Baba and thinking that I had these divine powers as wow. well. And I would use that a, as, a, as a catalyst to say, I'm using this. I'm deceiving you. In fact, there are many people throughout history who have made the claim to being God mm. and have lied. And it takes an expert in the, in the art of deception, visual deception, because he's using a visual medium to convince you that he's God-man. They call him God-man. Wow. <laughs> he's God-man, right? Uh, to uh, say, I can do the same thing. If I can do the same thing, then what does that make his claim? Right. In fact, why do people believe in anything supernatural? And I would share my testimony of how being raised in a non-religious home came to the conclusion that God was real and Jesus was his revelation. But that's that's one of the things that was sort of a part of my ministry was having to expose palm readers and ghost hunters and, you know, psychics and mediums and the whole world of of shaman and black magic. And, you know, I wrote a book on it too. um, The phrase that you said, once I had earned my right to share the gospel, that you said that phrase, and that really stuck with me. I like that phrase, Mm -hmm. once I'd earned that right. So to our question from MACD, um, so when is it worth bringing up God in a conversation? He he comments that people get turned off when you Mm. talk about God and bring him up. Mm. When is it, um, you know, when is it worth it? When is it appropriate to bring up God? What's an approach? What have you found? Mm. You know, like I say, you mentioned when you've earned the right. Yeah. Maybe that's through our gift. Maybe that could be through kindness or something. But any comments on that? Well, I, I always encourage Well, it's always worth bringing up God. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, Next question. There's We teach a whole course on this subject uh, through Faith Search International Ministry that uh, I work through. And um, <clears throat> it's interesting that there are very different approaches to evangelism, witnessing, sharing your faith. And we have found that there, the approach there's there's what's called confrontational evangelism, where you're approaching strangers, and and we typically say that although not always ineffective, it is the least effective approach because you have no credibility, no relational uh, grounding, no common ground in which to uh, earn the the right to share, unless someone decides they want to uh, confront with you. So that's why we call it confrontational. It's not a a bad method. Um, it's uh, the most commonly used when you have nothing, you know, going door to door, going to the swap meet, going to the park and witnessing to homeless people, whatever it might be. Um, <clears throat> what we have found is that when you ask how many people have actually come to faith compared to other 
methodologies, it is the least effective. And when it comes to when is it appropriate to share your faith in a conversation, it really depends on the level of relationship. So some people call relationship evangelism or relational evangelism is another methodology is that you love people to Jesus. You build a relationship, you show them how much uh, God has uh, blessed your life in terms of your character, your personality, how loving you are. And uh, typically with that approach, unlike confrontational evangelism, people very rarely if ever actually share or articulate their faith. So you've got these two polar opposites of Everyone gets to hear over here, but it's very confrontational. It can be tend, tend to be off-putting. And over here you have, I'm going to just love these people, but there's never any, you know, as my one of my mentors would often say, Andre Cole, he says, well, too much tact means no contact. <laughs> so you're not actually able to share anything because you're too nice about it. And I could go on into a whole nother a series of lessons that we do on the subject of outreach and community evangelism and so on. But I have found that it's very important to be discerning on <clears throat> on what level of credibility you've established through friendship, through relationship, and also uh, just how you carry it. Are you being confrontational or are you being generally inquisitive? So if I'm sitting next to someone in an airplane and and I have an advantage of doing something that actually causes people to ask questions of me, like, if I pull out, pull out a deck of cards, which I would always do on purpose, I would just start playing with cards. And I, I knew that if I was going to do that, I would be ending up witnessing the person next to me because mm-hmm. they would ask me, wow, that's cool. Can you please, how long have you been doing? They are interested in your life. That's because I've, I've shown something that is of an interest. So right. when you have relationships, if there is a common ground, a common interest, people generally are interested in the lives of the people they have relationships mm-hmm. with. So you use that, and a simple approach for me is, if you're getting to know somebody for the first time, just simply ask. So, um, what do you do for a living? Are you a church kind of going person? Are you married? Do you have kids? You know, that, you just add that as part of your general inquiry of who they are. And if they say no, oh really? Is that um, something you were raised in, or something you just are consciously? You know, I'm I'm obviously very involved in my church, and I'm always curious, and mm-hmm. and so being friendly. And being generally interested, there's one thing that's true about most people is they love talking about themselves. Right. So nine out of ten times you want to ask questions and then let people talk Mm -hmm. and then just keep asking more questions. So I don't know that it's ever inappropriate to talk about God, but there are ways of going about it that are a little more tactful, a little more friendly. Mm -hmm. So skills like how to win friends and influence people are always helpful if you're someone who really desires to be a good witness yeah, tactics, in all your sphere of influence. Tactics by Greg Kokel is another great mm. resource. And, and again, just making sure that you're either A, not the kind of person people would want to avoid talking to just in general, and B, mm. the things that you generally talk about include Jesus. And if they take the opportunity to ask you questions or you have the chance to ask questions, as we learned from uh, Peter Falk's uh, Columbo series, mm-hmm. a well-placed question does a lot more damage yeah. than a uh, accusation or a speech. And the mm-hmm. sooner you cross that bridge in this new encounter or relationship with someone, the better. And the less you share up front, the more conversations you can have in the in the foreseeable future. So if I mm-hmm. meet someone for the first time and I just pour out gospel track after gospel track, I'm probably never going to have a conversation with that person ever again unless I triggered a common ground. So I always tell people when you're sharing your faith, always establish a common ground, yeah. a, a, 
a common interest and then a common ground, not just relationally, but also a common ground of where the person's at. So if you're in the moment and you sense, okay, I don't think this person is a believer. I don't sense that they're a Christian. Where do you think they're at? You can, I, just in a few minutes, I can tell what kinds of books people read, what kind of podcasters they listen to. And if they do go to church, just by having them talk about their experience, I could probably mm-hmm. tell you what kind of church they go to the, doctrinally, mm-hmm. just from letting them talk about themselves. And so I would say that <clears throat> being a good listener and being mm-hmm. genuinely interested in other people is the best way to talk about God without having to come right out and say, do you believe in God? Yeah. Why not? Let me prove to you the 10 reasons why I do and why you're wrong. Right. It's probably not the best approach. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Or if you're at the SWAT meet and you're talking to somebody, I'm usually making artwork for people. They come over and say, hey, can you make me something? And sure, takes me about 10 or 15 minutes. And then suddenly this uh, guy from our church comes across and says, hey, want to kill some time while we're waiting? And that's the opportunity. Mm-hmm. If I'm alone, yeah. obviously, I'll ask them questions. And then they speak a language I don't. And then it becomes uncomfortable. But the point being made is mm-hmm. just that, is yeah. having that sort of not only aura of approachability, but also having the respect for the person you're talking to to say, I care enough about you to not only meet you where you're at, but to lead you to a place you ought to go. Mm. If you can do that, make sure you stick to the mm. Bible, make sure that you communicate the heart of Jesus where you, in your shoes, and of course that as you're doing so, that you are the one that's more mm. often being approached than approaching. There's a time and a place for it, just mm-hmm. like at the swap meet. We don't uh, you know, charge people passing by. We'll ask them questions. We'll wave and say hi and smile. But if they approach us, that's the opportunity. There's that should a, be yours as well. And there's a huge advantage. What they're doing at what we call it, for those of you who aren't in the Tucson area and aren't familiar with what's called the swap meet, it's a huge, 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 um, ah, gosh, what's another word for it? Market? A market. It's an outdoor market where anybody can pay for a slot. It's all dirt, <laughs> and they set up tents and booths. And I guess it's gotten more advanced since I haven't been uh, there shopping in years. But when you have a display, letting people clearly know who you are and why you're there, that's not considered confrontational. Where you're approaching someone as a stranger and saying, "I want to share something with you," even though you haven't asked me to. I'm knocking on your door saying. I want to talk to you, and you haven't called me, you haven't asked me to come knock on your door. What they're doing is actually very different, and I think actually very can be very effective, because mm. they're saying, we're here, and you know why we're here. You right. know exactly who we are, and if you're interested, mm-hmm. you can come talk to us. Yeah. And so that's what I do in my show. I say, I, I do my show, I'm on a college campus, Muslim audience, Buddhist audience, Hindu audience, secular audience been through all of them, and then I share my story of how I got into magic and the meaning, the meaningfulness of my faith. Hmm. And, I, and then I share my story using magic to illustrate, and I say, you know, some people ask me, how did that life transformation happen? You know, I'm, I'm not here to force you to listen to my sermon. Tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a one-minute break, and if you're interested in sticking around for the end, I'm going to use a simple illusion to illustrate the most important truths I've ever discovered in my life. In fact, Mm. students have come up to me and said that those were the most significant few minutes they'd ever experienced. So Mm. if you want to stick around for that, you're more than welcome to. 
However, during this one minute break, it'll still be dark in the auditorium. You can sneak out without being embarrassed and I will not be offended in any way whatsoever by giving students permission to decide whether or not they want to hear what I have to say, even though I've only set the stage about using magic as the catalyst, my story as the credibility. I've been there, done that. I, I, I had a need. I wasn't raised in this. You know, I'm sort of sale. It's like a sales pitch in a sense. We call it our personal testimony. That's why right. we have personal testimonies. And knowing how to share your personal testimony is the most effective way to actually launch into an opportunity to talk about God. Because mm. you're sharing your story and your, your, your experience. And then, ironically, uh, well, amazingly, no one ever leaves. I've never had a student get up and walk away in the several thousand college pros, uh, programs I've done. No one has ever got up and go, well, if he's going to talk about God, I came here to see a magic show. I am leaving because I'm a Buddhist oh. or I'm a Muslim, and there's no way I'm going to sit down and listen mm. to this guy. In You've fact, never, never I've had that. that. I've never had a single person get up and leave during uh. that one-minute break. I have had people get upset, and and when I, especially Muslim audiences, but very few uh, uh, times, I was in uh, Bangladesh, and there was a small group of Muslim women. You know, all you could see is the little <laughs> little eye sockets. Yeah. And they were just like, hey, we're Muslims. We don't want to hear this. Even th- They must have not been paying attention when the translator mm. gave the one-minute break option to leave. And uh, <clears throat> he cautioned me. He said, we need to get out of here. This is going to erupt into a riot. We're going to get beat up. And I said, no, finish the presentation. We'll be fine. So I kind of wrapped it up. He says, "Well, don't don't do a prayer. Don't invite them to you know become followers of Jesus. That'll that'll erupt the crowd." Mm-hmm. Afterwards, I had five Muslim women also, you know, <laughs> so devout come up to me and say, "Why did you stop preaching? We wanted to hear more." Wow. And so it just goes to show that you know, on occasion when you when you just strike the wrong chord in one small group but because yeah. because I established all that credibility by performing sharing my life sharing yeah. my stories caring about their culture and exposing deception that they're faced with and they always yeah. appreciate that like oh wow I didn't know it's like you know discovery channel on stage kind of a thing I didn't know that and I, that's and I obviously he's telling you the truth because the things I just saw were so much more profound and more amazing right. looking than anything I've ever seen on a street corner. Yeah. And uh, uh, by and large, the formula, even though I'm using a, an illusion show, the formula always, always works, is establish a credibility, show people you have genuine cares. Someone once said the <clears throat> greatest apologetic that we can demonstrate is love, genuine love for one another. Mm-hmm. And Jesus said that. He said, you know, they right. will know you're my disciples by because your of love, your yeah. love for one another. And uh, they, uh, it's often been said that no one... Uh, cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Yeah, that's right. Great insights. Yeah, Thank we got you, uh, five questions sent along to us live from those listening right now, and we're awesome. almost over halfway done. So let's, let's get do to some of those. Yeah. What do you call that? The speed round? No, not. <laughs> the, hopefully, not have to resort to the lightning round. But Ani's question, I think, is worth the time. Do it. Um, sorry, what did you say, Sean? Uh, Ani said, uh, is the creation story in the fall of Genesis symbolic, and how is something determined in the Bible is symbolic or not? Well, Ani, when it comes to proper handling of biblical text, you first have to be aware of the assumptions you're making before reading and make sure that don't interfere with what's actually being read. Uh, when we determine what's symbolic and what's not, the three ways that we employed with Isaiah 40:22 was obviously 
Uh, first of all, if it's taken literally, does that lead us to an absurd conclusion? Secondly, is it handled by other people, and not just people, but authorities on this topic, in a way that would lead us to that conclusion that it is, in fact, meant to be taken literally, because they took it literally, and uh, the one I'm speaking of is the author. And then, of course, when it comes to the genre of the text, is it appropriate to conclude that that is history? So if we go to the account in Genesis chapter 2, obviously uh, Genesis chapter 1 overviews the creation of the earth in six days, the seventh day God rested, and then chapter 2 begins with this. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished, and on the seventh day, note this, God ended his work which he had done, rested on the seventh day from his work which he had done. He blessed the seventh day, made it holy, and note this, this is relevant to the audience he's speaking to. Um, it says in verse 4, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was on the earth, the herb of the tree, so on and so forth, not caused it to rain on the earth, there was no man to till the ground. It goes on to give us details. But notice that term, history. History or histor in Greek is referencing eyewitness and the one who made it before anything else is around to observe it came from the source that's reporting it. We note that Moses was the one who physically penned this work, but he received this information from God firsthand. That's why the first five books of the Bible are considered a part of the historical section of the Old Testament, Genesis chapters 1 through 10 included. Now, what's important to note about this is, first of all, it presents itself in the language as history, not as symbolism and not as poetry. It certainly follows a structure of communication, but that's no more evidence of it not being literal than the things we read in Isaiah. So let's again take this at face value. Is it irrational to come to the conclusion that the God who raised Jesus from the dead <laughs> could also make the heavens and the earth in six literal days? Now, obviously, it didn't take six literal days because that was just such a taxing and complicated process for him. We note in Revelation chapter 21 that he is going to make a new heavens and a new earth and not even need a process into it. He did this, again, for the sake of his audience and understanding, here's the structure of your week, here's the structure of your weekend, and the concepts go on, that you're going to rest on that seventh day because that's when God finished from his work, so will you. So you can thank Judaism and Christianity for normalizing that. But continuing on, is it again absurd for there to be an origin of the universe, a creative work, an intended work in creation? Absolutely not. We know not only from spiritual but secular science that the universe does indeed have a starting point and that it is finely tuned. That doesn't conflict with reality or is in any way absurd. We don't have to take this symbolically, therefore we won't. The rule is, if the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense lest you believe in nonsense. The third is again how it's handled by others. I would default to no less an authority than Jesus of Nazareth on this matter, where in the Gospel of Mark chapter 10, Jesus was having an interesting conversation about something that's still a controversy today, but for different reasons. In Mark chapter 10, he was discussing with the religious leaders at the time the issue of divorce, if you could just divorce someone for any reason. And when they said, well, uh, what does Moses command you? They said, write her a certificate of divorce and dismiss her. Then Jesus gives him an interesting answer and treats the response as if it's a historical and actual example rather than a symbolic allegory of relationships. This is in verse 5 of Mark chapter 10. Jesus answered and said to them, because the hardness of your hearts 
he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of creation, notice he just says that flat out, that there was a creation, and at the start of it, notice this, God made them. Not that he gradually introduced them, not that they just happened to show up and God named or identified them as Homo sapiens sapien. He says, God made them male and female. And notice they didn't self-identify as that. God named them that. It also goes on to note, and quote, by the way, from Genesis chapter 2, the end of the chapter, noted specifically, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Notice Jesus' conclusion is not only literal in the handling of the text, the two become one, but also noting in that committed relationship, so likewise what? Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. The joining is from God, not from just your body. But here's the point that's being made, Annie. If I take this text as Jesus took it, if I take the text on the merit of its own text, and if I uh, take into consideration how the text presents itself, not as the allegory of the heavens and the earth, but the history of the heavens and the earth, I take it how Jesus did it, where it was directly relevant to the actual creation of Adam and Eve in Genesis, man and woman, Isha and Isha, if you will, and noting that as the model for how literal marriage ought to be applied today as well, and continuing on, not just with that, but also the genre itself, it's not absurd to think that the creation of the heavens and the earth were anything but what they read as. The only reason people dismiss this is because they have prior assumptions or prior loyalties to other ideas that are in conflict with this. Now, if your authority isn't the Bible, then by all means, stand or fall on that authority. But I take it on this authority, not just because Genesis lines up with reality, that there was a start to the universe and it came from someone who could do it any way he wanted, but even more significantly, I trust that source because of the historical resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. If that is an established historical fact, then I can take that information and go, well, I can't test the start of everything. I wasn't there. I wasn't the starter to this whole mess. But if, on the other hand, I go, he just proved he was, and he treats this account as if it's literal, the text itself treats itself as if it's literal, or at least historical, and, of course, it's not absurd or conflicting with anything scientific, verified scientific, not assuming scientific, that would allow me to say, well, if someone could raise someone from the dead just because of reasons, he could also introduce a universe which we can verify, not just through secular, but also through spiritual-based science. So the point being made is that, Ani, we're handling the text as consistently as we would in Isaiah 40, 22. It's not absurd. It's handled by other people, literally, and the text itself says, take this literally. If you don't, then check the assumptions that are being made, and hopefully you will be able to align your loyalties accordingly. Hmm. Anything to add to that, Adrian? Uh, no, I have nothing no? to add, but <clears throat> whenever you ask if something is symbolic, you know, usually, like if someone, uh, just looking at the question direct, I didn't get to read it, but if you say, is Genesis 1 symbolic? If someone were to take that road, what is it symbolizing? That, hmm. that God literally created everything. <laughs> um, otherwise, uh, what's the point of your question? Right. Or if you're comparing what modern science says, like, for example, the theory of evolution, did human beings evolve? And is the Bible being symbolic about 
God created. Well, it's just a symbol that he created. I mean, he didn't actually created them. Well, then what is it symbolizing? Mm. If, the, if it's symbolic, it, it has to mean something. If it doesn't mean that God literally created humanity and all of life, well, then what is he saying? And right. so, and, and to, just as a side note, because a text is taken to be historical does not mean there won't be on occasion symbolic language used in it. Mm. So I would point that out that uh, I wouldn't say that's true of Genesis 1, but you know, I, I think <clears throat> talking snakes might be symbolic for something, but something literal. Nahash in real. Hebrew means shining one. It could be a parallelism. It could be a lot of things. But note, if the devil takes on the form of a snake, that's introducing new rules, thus not nonsense. And if it was a mistranslation of serpent as in a snake, or at least a misapplication mm-hmm. of me, and it's actually just referring to an angelic creature, that doesn't change the text at all. He's compared to a snake in crawling on his belly in Genesis 3, but that's in a conversation where mm-hmm. it's messianic and prophetic, not historical, and noting the introduction. And you can usually glean, depending on the genre of Scripture, when you're dealing with something that the entire book is historical narrative, you can pretty much be correct in assuming that it's historical narrative. Mm. It doesn't mean that the author isn't going to occasion use a euphemism, but they're still describing historical narrative yeah. versus uh, poetry or apocalyptic yeah. language where symbolism is intentionally used, and mm. we know it's intentionally used. And so to suggest that, or to it's a fair question, but to, to believe that it's symbolic when the entire book is all historical narrative is kind of a leap. So yeah. always interpret scripture based on the genre that it's, whether it's intended to be uh, uh, poetic or intended to be symbolic of, of greater things that are out of this world. But if uh, if it's historical narrative, then you kind of just take it at its face value. Yeah. Annie, thank you for that question, a great question. Thank you for being part of the, the broadcast as well. We have a question from Lynn. What is the difference between the judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne judgment? And thank you. Audience and outcome. Mm. The judgment seat of Christ is referenced in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and noting the rewards that we'll receive for how faithfully we've lived in this life. Mm. You can cross-reference that with 1 Corinthians 3. But the great white throne judgment, which is referenced in Revelation chapter 20, is a total judgment of all people, all places, all times, on the basis of one thing and one thing only. Are their names written in the book of life? Mm. Obviously, those who are written in the book of life are subject to the judgment seat of Christ. Those who aren't, we see the outcome, are given their fair day in court where God shows them why they are separated from him forever, Mm. why they and where and when they have violated their nature and his, and ultimately that this is what they want, not what he wants, not what he literally wants past all heaven and earth and died on a cruel Roman cross in order to accomplish. And note as well the difference between what puts me before the judgment seat of Christ and what puts me before the great white throne judgment is just that, is my name written in the book of life. Adrian, uh, you're talking to someone on the street who brings that up. How do I get my name written in the book of life? Well, if you have Christ, your name's written in the book of life. <laughs> And how do if I get you, him? If you don't have Christ, then, uh, well, uh, you know, uh, the simple gospel message is that we're all sinful and separated from God. God created us, as we just described <laughs> in Genesis 1, where we're told that we're not the product of random chance, we're not the product of an accident, that there is intent and purpose and genuine meaning in our lives, and our lives were, were created for the purpose of eternity. 
But uh, that's the only way you can actually have genuine meaning and purpose in life is if you have eternity. You remove that out of the equation, in the end, life is meaningless, which is why most atheistic philosophers conclude that that life is absurd. Mm. It only makes sense in light of eternity, and eternity only makes sense in light of an eternal, transcendent, personal God. So if God made us to have a relationship with him, what happened? What broke down? Well, as we talked about in uh, in Genesis chapter 3, it describes humanity's rebellion from God. Humanity said, God, you go your way, I go my way, I don't need you, I'll run my own life. And this is what God calls sin. And God said the day that people sin, in that day they would die. Meaning that not only will I eventually experience physical death, that we all will do, uh, but also an eternal separation from God. But as we know, God in his love and his mercy for, for humanity, he stepped out of time and uh, out of eternity into time and he visited planet Earth and walked and talked with us for 33 years and allowed the people that he created to, to beat him and nail him to a cross. But mm-hmm. then, of course, demonstrating who he was, he, Jesus said, I come to take away the sins of the world. He did that by being sinless in his own life but then taking on the sin of all humanity. And that uh, he says, uh, the scripture says, as many as received him, to those he gave the right to become children of God. Mm-hmm. So we become orphaned because of our sin, and we become adopted children because of the gift of God's grace through uh, what Jesus did on the cross. So having your name written in the Lamb's book of life simply means that you have received this grace, this gift. And the moment that a person uh, puts their faith in Christ, in that moment, God spiritually comes into that person's life in a supernatural well way where he literally is in living in us spiritually. And uh, that is the hallmark of the, or I should say that is the, the actual results of, of having received Christ is that we become born again. Jesus said that no one can see God unless they are born of water, which is the physical birth, but also the spiritual birth, which is the born again. That's why Jesus said born again. You're born once, but then you gotta, you gotta exist. <laughs> you know, you don't go to heaven if you don't exist, but right. uh, you also must be born spiritually because we're spiritually dead. And, uh, and that's what brings about the, that's what separates us, as we see in scripture, the wheat from the, the chaff. The wheat are those who simply belong to Jesus, and we don't belong to Jesus because of any great number of works we've done, but simply by uh, having the conviction of the Holy Spirit that we're sinful and broken and lost and separated from God, falling on our knees and humbly saying, save me, save me, and putting our faith in Christ. And in that moment, as I said, you know, we are born again, but... um, uh, we now <laughs> get to go through two judgments. One is we don't get judged by the great white throne judgment, but it's a moment of judgment because we're sep- being separated out from the wheat and the chaff. And then we stand before Christ where we have to give an account for the lives we lived as believers. And as Paul says in Corinthians, and as Sean alluded to, everything we do in the Christian life will go through the fire. And how we lived our Christian life will be tested by fire. So it may not be swift like the great white throne judgment. It will be severe, but uh, at least at the end, we'll be saved and we'll yeah. be with God for eternity. Yeah, amen. Lynn, thank you for that uh, question. I hope that, that helps you out. We have a question from Holly 
These, these are my favorite kind of questions that are very simple, um, but they're very profound. Mm. They seem simple. Her question is, uh, how do you know if something is from God? It's consistent with what he's already revealed mm-hmm. to us in his word. He's not going to contradict or conflict in his own nature. So if I hear something from God, this is the example oftentimes given, and not, by the way, not hyperbole. This is a literal conversation my father had with a guy in prison. He said, uh, you know, I was just feeling there was this uh, message from the Lord from me that he wanted me to, you know, deal with my finances by robbing a bank. Well, my dad asked him, what part of you shall not steal was difficult to understand. And he said, but it was from God. And he says, yeah, it wasn't from God because his word conflicts directly from that. And that's the whole point of what Deuteronomy 13 and 18 were both laying out for us. If we are hearing something from God, it's not going to be some not only new, but contradictory revelation. And here's the principle we usually like to tell people, Holly. If it's new, it ain't true. If it's true, it ain't new. Obviously, if you're given a personal revelation about someone or some specific circumstance that's not laid out in Scripture, you have to judge it in more specific ways. But the point of emphasis is just that. Is the ideas of what's being presented to you in the name of God in line with what's already been presented under the examination of the prophets in Scripture? If you can test it, show me chapter and verse Mm -hmm. that that's in conflict with God's nature or not, then by all means, see if the Lord is leading you that way. But as we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, test all things, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. We determine that by God's revelation of himself. Mm. Note what you have in front of you. That's how you tell. Yeah, I, I love that kind of question because I deal with it in my program, how to know whose God is the real God. Now, of right. course, I'm looking at it from more of a big picture. I think the intent of this question is, how do I know when God's leading me in a right. area of my life? Yeah. But on a bigger scale, uh, God always authenticates his revelation. Uh, in fact, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4, he says, uh, well, I'll just read the, the whole first pa- part of the passage. We must therefore pay even more attention to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. For if the message spoken through angels was legally binding, and every transgression and disobedience received just punishment, talking about the Old Testament law and so on. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? In other words, what I just shared a moment ago, if we ignore that, how much more severe of a punishment will we have to those who didn't get to hear that? And he goes on to say, um, uh, it was first spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. And at the same time, God also testified by signs and wonders, various miracles, and distributions of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to his will. So in other words, he's saying that the reason we have an apostolic authority was because of the miraculous. God always authenticates his message through the miraculous. Mm -hmm. Now, I wouldn't say that if you're trying to discern God's will, you're going to wait for a miracle, but... Uh, one, that's why we rely on Scripture and God's Word, because it has been authenticated. We, there is no longer a need to prove that this is God's message to humanity. This is God's revelation. So when I'm trying to discern what God is asking me to do or what God wants me to do, I go to the Scriptures to find mm-hmm. that out. And I compare my human thinking to what the Scripture says, and that's how I discern what God wants, because he's already told me what he wants. And right. he, he says that he has finished that revelation to all humanity in the person of Jesus. Yeah. Very good. Great question, Holly. Thank you for that. I, I think of the verse that says that Jesus said, my sheep will know my voice as well, you know, because there's not every specific situation in life where we can turn to the Bible and, and read 
this is what you do, but learning the character and the voice of God to apply that to those situations, I think is, is really important. And uh, something, the H comes after the T. Oh, look at that. It's very small on my screen um, and I'm getting very old. Ting. Something. That's how we spell it in England. That's usually my, that's usually my excuse. English expert. We'll just yeah. chop it up to cultural differences. <laughs> that's right. But uh, right now I, I do a weekly live stream. I just co-host kind of like what Dave's doing here. Uh, my Our president and one of my mentors, Dr. Dom Byerly, he's a PhD biologist and a Bible teacher and an evangelist. And we're actually currently going through a series called The Will of God, How to Know the Will of God Without mm. Confusion and Fear. And so we're doing uh, part four. We do it every Tuesday at uh, f- um, four o'clock Arizona time, uh, six o'clock Central time. But uh, if you go to Dr. Don live or something, just Dr. Don live on Facebook, you can go back and look and he goes through a really in-depth study on how to discern God's will for your life. And what does that even mean? Is there a God's will for my life? Mm. And that kind of thing. So it's really, really interesting, very easy to absorb, and uh, it's going to be a six, I think, five or six-part series. Great. Well, thanks for that, Holly. That would be a great resource for you. Dr. Don, right? D-O-N? Yep, D-O-N. Yep, Dr. Don Live. Great. And just do a search of that on Facebook and you can very find it. Very good. A, and how can, if someone wants to hear more about your ministry... Adrian, how can someone follow you as well in your... Uh, yeah, you can uh, go to our website, faithsearch.org, hmm. and uh, there's a speaker's roster. We have uh, three speakers on our staff, myself, Dr. Don, who's our president, and then we have uh, a Russian speaker who uh, uh, goes and shares apologetics to school teachers in Russia every year. Well. And he's doing, he's in there right now. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, yeah, you can go and look for my name and, uh, or you can just Google my name. I have my own website as well. Great. Adrian, thank you so much. Sean, thank you. Great hour with you guys. Just fly by the seat of the pants kind of thing. God bless you. We'll see you same time tomorrow. Have a wonderful rest of your evening. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word. One question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.